Hey, Missing Maura Murray listeners, we wanted to bring you this bonus episode today where we spoke to old friend Professor Elizabeth Yardley from Birmingham City University in the UK. She wrote a research paper recently called The Etiology of Rejected Stocking Towards an Integrated Theoretical Framework, and we had her on to discuss. So make sure to check out her website, elizabethyardley.com, and follow her on Twitter. There are links in the show notes. Thanks a lot, and I hope you enjoy this bonus. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the podcast, Professor Liz Yardley. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, anytime. Open door policy here for you uh, because everything that you bring to the table is so relevant. I, I think Tim and I go through these like waves of uh, different instances that happen in our lives based on the shows that we do. And uh at the end of that, there's always a paper that you have written about that is kind of relevant to what we just went through, unbeknownst to you or us that that you're that you know you had no idea that this was happening. We had no idea you were working on a paper or had a paper, but all of a sudden it just kind of pops up. So we've kind of come to expect that with uh, everything that goes on in our lives, and uh, just want to thank you for for coming on again. Um, but before we get into it, you have a you have a picture there in behind you on the wall. Uh, what does that say? I do. Um, I've got several of these up around my house and they're these inspirational quotes that I, I just like to have around me. And that one says, do no harm, take no shit. Okay. Love it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so that's mantra of the moment right now. <laughs> Great. And uh, yeah, you've written this incredible paper on stalking. And uh, actually, it is called The Etiology of Rejected Stalking Towards an Integrated Theoretical Framework. And Liz, I can't believe you did it. I, I had to look up the first word of the title. Me too. <laughs> my uh, Google, my Bing browser 
is stuck on uh, definition of. When I start reading your paper, I just type in definition of, and then I just copy and paste as as I go along. But Tim's right. The fr- <laughs> the first word, I was like, well, gotta gotta check in on that one. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, it's it's one of those theoretical papers, um, so it does sound like I swallowed a dictionary. Um, but hopefully, it improved from that point onwards, and and you've understood <laughs> a no. bit more of it. Yeah, yeah, no the uh, the paper makes great sense, and um, a- after you know googling etiology and realizing that it in the context it would be the investigation of the cause or reason for stalking in this uh, case. And then it was like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. And uh, I really love the paper. And so well done. But before we get into that, though, I want to ask you about your blog. Tell us about your blog, because it's been very active lately and excellent. Yeah, so um, I set up my own blog. Um, I think it was the beginning of this year. It's something I've always wanted to do and never really got around to it. Um, So elizabethyardley.com. Um, that's where I kind of share my ideas and, and my perspective on, on current cases, um, on stories that are in the news and also on old cases that, that I think perhaps haven't had the attention that they deserved. So, so that's my, my go-to place now. So I had a bit of a break from it um, during the, the um, pandemic lockdown, but I'm very much back on it again now. And um, yeah, it's one of those things that I do. Um, I really love writing and writing for a wider audience as well, because I think as an academic, you have a tendency to write in a particular way because your work has to be published in academic journals and academic books. And there's part of me that really doesn't enjoy that because very often those books sit on a shelf somewhere or that journal article just sits in a drawer and you know you and 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 maybe three or four other people read it um so the blog for me is a way of basically taking my research and my ideas to a wider audience and and just trying to to make people take a slightly different look at um at some of the cases that are around us yeah and you uh, formatted your your blog, your website, um, really beautifully. Like it was very very nicely laid out and very easy to to navigate. So we've got to love Squarespace, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant for tech dinosaurs like me. <laughs> <laughs> but in in addition to you being a really um, amazing writer and uh, researcher, you can just add web design onto your onto your CV now. <laughs> oh no there's very little technical skill there whatsoever <laughs> well a lot of your work on your blog and uh and i'm sure in your in your classes i would imagine um focuses on misogyny femicide domestic abuse and and the like and uh so that that's kind of the direction of the your paper on stalking too because um I, I learned in your paper that um, women are more likely to be victims of stalking. Yeah, they absolutely are. And especially when we look at one particular type of stalker. So when we look at the rejected stalker, um, this is the stalker who engages in this kind of behavior after the end of an intimate relationship. So it's, it's ex-partners, ex-husbands, um, it's those kind of situations and those perpetrators are much more likely to be male. And, and there's one study that shows around 90% of rejected stalkers are men. So there is a real gender dynamic at play in this one. 
Okay, well, there's a lot to uh, dig into with uh, why men would do that, um, and you you explore that in your paper. You you explore the the, the spectrum and the in between of um, you know the stalking and the result of the stalking and everything that leads up to that. But what what are some of the examples of being stalked if you're uh, just ending a intimate relationship? If you're a woman and you've ended the intimate relationship, where's the um, difference? Where's the line between this man is hurt and and wants to reconcile and this man is stalking me yeah it's um it's a very fine line sometimes um and when we look at the kind of behavior that people might engage in after a relationship's come to an end and that decision has been a unilateral one so one person has decided i'm walking away from this i've had enough and the other person doesn't accept that decision when we look at some of the behavior that they then engage in those behaviors on their own might not be illegal, might not be considered harmful, but when they're put together, they do, they do constitute a course of conduct that we could call stalking. So this would be things like um, sending unwanted WhatsApps or text messages um, to the victim, hanging around outside the victim's home, turning up at the victim's workplace, happening to be there um, if you're on a night out or something like that sending gifts so you know chocolates flowers that kind of thing um so these behaviors in and of themselves they're not illegal when we take them in isolation but this is the key thing about stalking we have to look at the collection of those behaviors and stalking is also quite a unique crime in a way because it's not determined wholly by the perpetrator's behavior the victim's view of that behavior is also really important so it's how does it make that victim feel and there's a, a really, really good acronym um, for, for thinking about stalking, and it's the word O-U-R. So if behavior is fixated, if it's obsessive, if it's unwanted and it's repetitive, then it's, it's highly likely to be stalking. Um, and, and I think for me, the key one there is unwanted. So lots of us receive, you know, gifts lots of us receive whatsapps and, and phone calls from people um and it's only when that's unwanted that it becomes a problem so the man in my life today for example he sent me this lovely teddy bear through the post and that's awesome and that made me really happy um but had that come from somebody that i didn't that i was not romantically interested in somebody that i was not interested in having a relationship in that would actually be something altogether different that's so uh, interesting that you're talking about these gifts and um, this uh, quick side story isn't anything other than just an example. Um, I met somebody once that uh, it was a couple and it was when I was bartending and the guy was so proud of himself because he said, I, I got this woman and I remember his exact words. He said, I got this woman because I sent her flowers every day for three months. And I looked at her and she was like, yep, he did. And I'm like, that's kind of odd. And she was like, yeah, that's that's kind of odd. And and they were together. And I was like, it just it, I've never uh, forgotten that. And you just reminded me about that when you said, you know, you received a, a teddy bear because just one teddy bear. You said if it was if it, if it was some from somebody that you weren't interested in, it would be unwanted. And that's just odd. What, I, I just wanted to give that quick story. I haven't thought about it in a little while. That story is a really interesting one because the use of the language there, I got this woman, 
that's really revealing, isn't it? it? This woman is an object. She is a possession for me to go out and acquire. She's not this person with like, you know, rights and liberties and the freedom to actually say, no, dude, I don't want a relationship with you. Um, and I think that's another really interesting thing in the background when we look at stalking these days. It's about ownership and possession and control. And we have this kind of idea in society, don't we, that, you know, if, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, you know, and, and there's no such thing as quitting, you know, winners never quit, quitters never win. All of these kind of ideas um, have become kind of transplanted into our romantic relationships and that is really damaging and when we look at the um the big hollywood movies and the love stories and the romance novels if we look at the kind of behavior that we see in in those those types of media um actually when you take it out and you look at it objectively it's actually really worrying you know that, that somebody like in the scene in love actually uh, when Andrew Lincoln's character turns up outside Kira Knightley's house with those those messages to her on the pieces of cardboard, I don't think that's loving. I think that's really scary. <laughs> but that's just my view. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like how you uh, touched on pop culture. And I think you mentioned Pepe Le Pew in here as well, which is a cartoon character um, of, a, of a skunk. And he's um, very flirtatious and trying to get this uh, female skunk. And she wants no part of him. The gate up to pilot. Pretty girl at three o'clock. Over. Pilot to navigator. Row, row. The leaps of Pepe are upon you. My little darling, it is love at first sight, is it not? No? Hello, Pepe. I am the locksmith of love, no? And and so the the problem there is is it perpetuates that culture from for for little kids. And so as even young men who wouldn't normally think that's bad, uh, you grow up thinking, oh well, I just need to be more persistent. And I think for most people, you eventually realize, okay, well maybe she just doesn't like me, and I'll uh, talk to somebody who's interested in me instead. That your your paper is obviously about people who don't uh, don't do that. Yeah, and and I think there's 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 an awful lot of the normalization of stalking behavior and the confusion um, of of these behaviors with love and romance, and and I think it it really should cause us just to take a step back um, because. All the work that I do around domestic abuse, domestic homicide, stalking, we, we know what an unhealthy relationship, an unhealthy dynamic looks like. But do we know what a healthy relationship looks like? That, I think that's the, the part that we perhaps need to revisit now. What do we mean when we talk about boundaries and we talk about respect and, and those kind of things? And I think that there is some work that's starting to be done. Um, in schools with children around healthy relationships but but crikey we've got a long way to go yeah and it really uh starts with like tim said the you know Pepe Le Pew is something that kids watch kids watch it's supposed to be funny yeah it, they they watch it right right from right from the jump you know like this is this is uh baked into their brain uh, as soon as they're able to process thought, you know, so this is something that is so ingrained and it's going to be very difficult to get that out of people's heads. It's it's the work that you do that will end up um, 
I think, uh, prevailing uh, later on when they're able to process these uh, these thoughts like uh, respect. You know, it's not about like it is about right and wrong, but it's more about respect. It's more about the respect of um, somebody else. It doesn't even have to be a man or, or, or a woman specifically. It's, it's just the other person. Just have respect for the other person. I, I have a I have a note here that that's part of your paper that uh, was interesting to me. You said half of domestic stalkers who make a threat of physical violence will act on it. Um, is that really fifty percent? Yeah, and that that's probably an underestimation uh, because that comes from a study um, where these these cases are known. They've been reported. They are you know recorded essentially. And there's there's a lot of stalking behaviour that goes unreported and unrecorded. I think because of of these ideas that we have about what love and romance look like because the victims can often actually feel quite ashamed and sort of blame themselves and say oh crikey it must have been something that I did to encourage it but when we look at rejected stalkers um, they are the most likely to physically harm the victim um, out of all of the different types of of stalkers and 50% I'd say at least if they make a threat then then they will act on it if they make a threat of, of physical harm so they need to be taken really really seriously and there's a case in the UK and I use this case a lot in my teaching um, and it's relevant to a, a lot of the research that I do there was a young woman called Alice Ruggles and she was murdered in October 2016 she was 24 years old and she was killed by her ex-partner um, and he, they had split up. She'd finished with him. How dare she? Um, and he wouldn't take no for an answer, essentially. And whilst he didn't actually tell her, I'm going to kill you or I'm going to physically harm you, he had said in a conversation with her or a voicemail, I think he left on her phone, don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. It's the very fact that he was actually talking about the physical harm um, that is interesting for, for me there. So I think it's useful to have that, that stat there, that piece of research that 50% of them who make a threat of physical violence will act on it. Also, those who are even referring to physical violence in the first place, we've got to be really, really wary of those people because why on earth would you do that? Yeah. And um, when you, your your paper focuses mostly on rejected stalkers, but there are also other types of stalkers uh, sort of similar to that. And uh, can you tell us about those and, and why you focused on rejected stalkers? Yeah, so there's um, th there's a typology, quite a well-known typology by Mullen and colleagues. It, it goes back about 20 years. Um, but there are, there are essentially five different types of stalker. Um, and the rejected stalker that we're talking about today is one of them. Another one is the intimacy seeker. So these people are, they're kind of um, sort of fantasists in a way. They don't really have a history of intimate connections with, with other people. Um, but there will be somebody who they kind of fixate on because they believe that that person has in some way reciprocated their feelings. They, they believe that they're kind of destined to establish a, a loving relationship with that person. And, and they, they become very kind of obsessed with them. So there's no previous relationship there. Um, it's the kind of fantasy of the relationship. And they don't really take their victim's feelings into account whatsoever. Any attention is, is good, according to them, whether that's positive or, or negative attention. So that's the, the intimacy seeker. Then we have the incompetent suitor. 
Um, so these are the people who they're seeking a relationship, but they're slightly different from the intimacy seeker um, in that they're not in love. They're merely looking to, to, to date or, or have a, a kind of contact with that person. That type of stalking, it's, it's often, it's, it's not always kind of sustained over a sort of a long period of time. Um, presumably because they, they, they give up essentially when they, they don't get what they want. The, another type is the resentful stalker. So the stalking, this, uh, and this is where there's, there isn't often so much of a gender dynamic. Um, men can be victims of this type of stalking just as much as women can. And this is about a desire for retribution for something that the perpetrator perceives that the victim has done to them, you know, whether or not they, they have. Um, and they're essentially, they have this self-righteousness and they're, they're trying to kind of um, get that vengeance, get, get their own back essentially on, on their victim. And then last of all, we've got the predatory stalker. These, these people are, the, are incredibly frightening. Um, we often see predatory stalking in cases of serial murder that kind of thing. Um, a lot of the serial killers that are well known have engaged in this kind of stalking behavior. Um, so they, they will stalk as a preparation for an actual physical attack and that, that attack is normally a sexual one in nature. Um, and the stalking is a means to an end and the end is essentially the, the assault. And they, they get in, in intense feelings of kind of power and control from, from stalking their victims. And very often their victims won't even know that they're being stalked uh, because these these individuals get very good at, um, at what they do. So so that's the predatory stalker. What are the effects of stalking on victims? Uh, what's the range of that, uh, especially with the rejected stalker? So it can be a really really intrusive thing. It can can reach into every element of, of people's lives. I've heard stories of people having to move house, having to change their job, having to really upend their lives in order to, to get away from their stalkers. Um, the, there's, there, there can be kind of physical effects as well in terms of the, the stress manifesting itself in physical symptoms. Um, there are studies of victims who've experienced post-traumatic stress disorder at this. And, and I think I think unless you're somebody who has actually been stalked, it's very difficult to, to understand um, things from a victim's perspective. So, you know, the, the decision that you or I would make to just go out to the shop to buy some milk or, or a loaf of bread, you know, we don't even think about that, that everyday thing. Um, but somebody who is being stalked, you know, would think about that. Is, is that person going to be waiting outside my house? Are they going to be hanging around the shop? Are, are they going to be there? So basically everything that you do in your life, that is there in the background. And it, it really does curtail people's freedoms. It, it really is. Stalking is very much a liberty crime. It really does take away people's people's rights and people's freedoms. Oh, it's interesting that you put it that way. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way at all. As we kind of talked about before, some of these these things aren't individually illegal, like telephone call, calls, sending emails, texts, instant messages, sending letters, gifts, unsolicited visits. But what could be illegal is putting these together in, I guess, a bigger case. So a lot of these things are kind of hard to prove, aren't they? 
yeah and and this is it this is the problem that we find very often the onus is on the victim to collect the evidence of of the crime that's been committed against them um it's down to the victim to take screenshots of text messages to to keep a diary of events of of occasions where the perpetrator has, has turned up of of particular things that the the perpetrator has done um so so yeah it can be difficult to to evidence and i think this is something that i find a lot in in my work especially around gender-based violence the onus is always on the victim whether that's to to prove that a crime against them has taken place or whether that's to to deal with with that crime so when we think about domestic abuse for example you know one of the most common questions that i come across is why didn't she just leave and I say, well, actually, no, that's not the question we should be asking. The question we should be asking is, why did that individual decide to harm her? Why did that individual think that it was okay to do that? We need to, to look at the person who's actually making the decisions to commit the crime rather than the person who's the victim of it. Is that why your paper is focused uh, a lot on the uh, the middle ground between these these levels of stalking uh, because that that was brought up a few times and and it's you have one end here and the other end here but there's not a lot of um connective tissue that uh that you can identify and define in order to solve or uh, i guess treat or uh, apply some sort of solution to Exactly. And this is the, the problem that we have in, in criminology. When we're looking at a crime or a problem, we either look up or we look down. So we look down, we look at the individual perpetrator, we look at kind of psychological issues with them, we really individualize it. And then we might look up, we might look at the, the social structure, we might look at the kind of society that we live in, um, some of the, the values and ideologies and beliefs in that society in terms of how they enable that kind of behavior. But what we very rarely do is, is stop in the middle and say, actually, how does an individual come to make sense of their lives? How does an individual come to form the values that they have? And I think it's really important that we look at institutions like the family, um, that we look at, at schools and colleges and universities and, uh, and those kind of spaces and places in which we kind of reconcile those structural social values with, with our own kind of preferences and choices and, and behaviors so if we're in an environment if we're in a workplace for example that is inherently misogynistic and and it, it's okay to kind of demean women in that kind of space and, and sexist behaviors are, are tolerated and even encouraged that's a really important middle area where the the kind of values that that enable these sorts of behaviors are are being formed so so i think that's that's something that we've really missed i think as as criminologists we've missed that kind of middle ground those middle spaces and we need an awful lot more work doing that to, to actually see how does this happen because there are a lot of people who are subject to the same kind of social values social ideologies um, yet not all of them in fact very few of them decide to go and harm other people so we need to really get to grips with that middle ground because that's going to help us answer that question. You know, who are the people who are more likely to engage in this kind of behavior? And, and what can we do about it? And uh, Liz, the last time we had you on, we spoke about a different research paper you wrote that was about uh, sex games gone wrong and how, and, and, and it was kind of, you made a similar point to where it, 
really starts misogyny starts really young. And so, so I take it, this is the same kind of uh, thing. Yeah, I think, I think when we look at the, the bigger picture in which stalking takes place, um, our views and our values about relationships, about intimate relationships are really important when we're, we're trying to make sense of, of this kind of crime. So when we, we look at the justification for stalking, when we listen to the stories that, that stalkers tell we listen to the kind of defenses that they give in court it's very kind of proprietorial it's very misogynistic this person is my girlfriend you know i i have a right to to behave in this way you know she drove me to do this you get all of those kind of stereotypical views of of women as as property essentially um that's that's what what it all comes down to it it's really um the the elephant in my brain right now and i just have to say it i mean we're we're talking about all of this and right now we have someone leading this country who on the campaign trail said that he has no problem grabbing women by the pussy and then he wrote it off by saying that's locker room talk locker room talk so that's the excuse this is how guys talk that's someone who's leading who, who actually got elected he also said that, he, oh, I wouldn't have uh, sexually assaulted that, that woman who alleged that I did because she's not attractive enough. Right. So he's, he's got standards of assaulting. He, yeah, in not so many words he said it that way, but that's basically right. what he said. Yeah, you're paraphrasing that. But, like, how do you—so it just leads me to the question, like, how, as a, as a, um, as a criminologist and, and then as professors and, and then I guess you can expand that out to social workers and psychologists and, you know, how, how, how do people come together to say, hey, your excuse of saying, and not just particularly Donald Trump's, but the excuse of saying this is locker room talk, is that's not the excuse. That's the problem. How does that message get conveyed? Yeah, it, it's just completely minimalized. It's um, it's denied. It's um, the, the way that it's it's justified is oh well, that's just banter. That's that's just you know an off the cuff remark that I said. But but no, I mean all behaviour is communication, isn't it? I mean anybody who says something like that is communicating something about their value set. And we had a, an interesting example of that in, in this country in the last couple of days, actually, um, that there's been um, an appointment of the, the former Australian prime minister um, to be a trade envoy for, for the UK, a guy called Tony Abbott. And um, he's got a bit of a colourful history in terms of misogyny and sexism and, and lots of unpleasant things like that. And, and a senior government minister was being interviewed on Sky News and the journalist said to him that this guy is, is a homophobe and he's a misogynist. And the senior government minister replied by saying, well, yeah, but he's also an expert in trade. You know, it, it's like it's almost like, well, that all the misogyny and the sexism and all that nasty stuff, well, that just doesn't matter, you know, because because this person is is wonderful. And it's like, no, <laughs> we should be looking at the, the big picture here. Uh, and yeah. it, it is just swept aside. Yeah, it's like that's like saying uh, Hitler loved kids. Hitler loved dogs. Exactly. Yeah. So let's he, make him children's <laughs> It wasn't a hundred percent bad, just just ninety five percent. Exactly. It's, it, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, I love these conversations that we have because it really uh, makes me see some some things that uh, are there, you know, and and you just don't see it because you're not being 
uh, directed appropriately. Yeah, this is another example um, that I come across in my work a lot. Um, and this is in the family court in, in this country where there are, um, there are disputes over, over child custody and visitation and that kind of thing. And where there is a situation where there's been domestic abuse in a, in a relationship and the, the perpetrator and the victim have a child together, when the perpetrator is applying for access to that child, you know, very often I've heard it said, well, yeah, he, he, was, he was abusive. He did, he did beat up his partner, but he's a good dad. And it's like, no, we cannot compartmentalize in this way. You know, if, if somebody if somebody is abusive in, in, in one sphere of their life, that is not just going to sit neatly in that cupboard. That is going to, to find its way into every single area of their lives. Right. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Right. Is there a domestic violence or coercive control connection with um, the the folks, uh, the rejected stalking people? I think so. Yeah. Um, there are in, in quite a lot of cases of rejected stalking, there is a history of domestic abuse or coercive control because it is about that sense of entitlement. I'm the one who calls the shots in this relationship. I'm the one who decides when it's over, not you. So it is that idea of the perpetrator being in control, taking away the victim's liberty. Um, and I think I think the fact that we're talking about coercive control is, is really important because we have this tendency to think of abuse in physical terms. Um, so if there's no visible physical injury, then there's no abuse. But actually, it's control that is the backbone of abuse. And actually, you can have an abusive situation where there's no physical violence ever because the perpetrator doesn't need to engage in physical violence to exert control. They, they, they do that through other means. Um, so by isolating the victim from their friends or family, by humiliating the victim, by demeaning them, very often they don't need to lay a finger on the victim. How does uh, the ego play into this? And is this related to narcissism? Yeah, there is very often uh, a narcissistic element um, when we, we look at the, the kind of the stalkers that, that, that I'm looking at. So when we think about narcissistic personality disorder, 
Um, this essentially refers to people who are incredibly self-censored, very arrogant, this lack of empathy for other people, um, so that there is no kind of break on their behaviour. Um, and they have this excessive need for, for admiration. And I think today there's, there's very much the sense that, that you have to have this intimate relationship to be considered, you know, a full person. And, and, the, and what other people see of you is really important. So, so very often for, for individuals like this, the, the, the intimate partner is not somebody to be loved and adored and respected and, and, and equal. They're somebody to display. You know, this is a symbol of my success that I have this partner. Um, so I think that very much comes into it as well, that that performance of, of self that we see in narcissists. Man, you, you said it, in order to be a full person, people need this intimate relationship. How many how many factors influence that? Because that can be parents telling their daughter to get, you know, you need to get a husband. You need to do this to become, you know, you can't live alone. You'll be uh, a spinstress or something. And, uh, you know, it, all that. And then on the other side, you have the, the masculine quality where it's a possession thing. How many factors are involved in this intimate relationship in order to be a full person? Oh, there's this, this, there are so many ways in which these messages are conveyed to us every day in, in society. And I think it, it really does show how we, we judge women largely on the success or failure of their relationships with men. Um, but do we do the same for men? I mean, I'm thinking about it in terms of my own kind of social circle and my own family here. There are, there are a few men in my family in their 40s, 50s, 60s who are single by choice and that's fine. They're bachelors. They're doing their own thing. Fabulous. But when we have like women in that age bracket, um, so so me for example, I'm I'm 39. Um, I know other women who are in their 40s and are not married. That comes with a real kind of judgment. It's like, oh, what's wrong with you? You know, why haven't you got that yet? Um, so I think it is that tendency to to judge women based on on relationships with men which is you know i think that's very much at the heart of all of this um all of this discussion about misogyny and and sexism we're, we're kind of judging men and women in very different ways great point and and i think your work is really helping to uh expose that um problem so uh thank you so much for all of your work um there, there was one well a million really interesting parts but one part i want to ask about um, where you wrote about people who come into contact with stalkers and those people kind of just believe those uh, those folks and almost kind of victim blame, don't they? Yeah, so some of the, the research on stalking um, has, has looked at the, the situations within which stalking occurs. They've looked at the circumstances in which the victims meet their stalkers. And there's been an awful lot of attention on on women who go out to, to bars and, and they're drinking alcohol, that there might be the consumption of illegal substances going on. And, and it's, it's that that's focused on. It's almost, it's the victim's behavior that that um that that researchers has fixated on rather than actually the perpetrator's decision to 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 do that so i think i think on the one hand we do have to understand vulnerability in terms of stalking um but not look at that from the victim perspective but look at that from the perpetrator perspective what are the things that that this predatory behavior actually preys on 
and it's the perpetrator who's making the choice and and, and not the victim what do you uh what do you call that 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 preparation is is there like a term that that you can that you can apply to that so when the perpetrator is basically going out and looking for for a victim you, uh, I mean, uh, how to protect yourself from that? Yeah, um, that's a really tricky one uh, because when you look at um, people who are prone to abusive and stalking behaviours, they um, they can be incredibly charming. They can be incredibly manipulative. And there's a great book that I've got on my bookshelf behind me, which I'm just going to get. So there's a book by Sandra Hawley, um, and she's the, the chief executive of a, a charity called Refuge in this country. And she's written this fabulous book called Power and Control, Why Charming Men Can Make Dangerous Lovers. And she talks about someone called Charm Syndrome Man. So he's this man that when you meet him, he appears to be this knight in shining armor. He's very attentive. He's very charming. He makes himself indispensable. He says all the right things. And that is essentially an act to basically get you under his control um and and i think when when you are in a situation like that when something is too good to be true um it can be quite intoxicating um so very often these people who are going to harm us who are going to abuse us they don't appear in our lives looking like monsters if anything they they look the exact opposite who's the uh, the writer of that book Sandra Hawley. And and how can you, uh, gosh, I mean, I guess protect yourself. I mean, you, you hear horror stories about this. I mean, I know uh, friends of mine who this has uh, happened to, and they realize it. Oftentimes, it's a bit too late. They've already been fearful of this person and in some cases had to take them to court. Um, so how, how do you, how can you tell? Well, I'd say trust your instincts because uh, that's always a very valuable thing. Um, and instincts is, whenever I say that to people, they think, oh, well, that's something a little bit kind of off the wall and it's all a bit spiritual. But actually our instincts and our gut feelings, the, the reason that we have those is, is through a lifetime of our, our own experience and, and the lessons that we've learned from past relationships and things that have happened in our lives. So when we feel that something is too good to be true, something isn't quite right, that is normally an indication that, that actually we should listen to that voice. And also listen to, to the people who care about you, the people in your inner circle, those who really matter. I mean, my friends and my family are always the sounding board that I go to when I'm in a new romantic relationship because I know that they are probably able to see things that I perhaps can't because I'm so kind of into that person so listening to to the people around you the people who do genuinely care about you is is an important thing to do how does uh, social media play into this? Uh, I know you mentioned uh, text messages, but I'm I'm speaking more about someone who might think that they are in a relationship with somebody else through Twitter or Facebook. Um, is is that something that uh, can be applied to the rejected stalker? Uh, I guess a uh, characteristic. Yeah, I think social media very much has kind of changed uh, the landscape of our intimate relationships, hasn't it? Um, because the the interaction that we have with people online is very different from the interaction that we have with people face to face and we all have different ideas and and different kind of um different conceptualizations of what a close relationship is and and i think 
that there are there are some individuals who you know if somebody likes you know many many of your tweets or many of your your instagram posts they will interpret that in a very different way to how somebody else would interpret it um so it's it's taken away a lot of those 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 social cues that we have in face-to-face -face interaction and and very often you know somebody can create a whole narrative around their relationship with somebody else based on the the interaction that they've had with them on social media um which which is quite quite damaging i think yeah i i'd imagine it's quite damaging for the person doing it and for the victim as well the person doing it might not have even realized that they were doing it and then it gets out of control and and is that possible to actually train yourself to become psychotic because sometimes the behavior feels like schizophrenic or psychotic if you're if you've invented all of these different personalities where does it stop like where's the line i think unless you're somebody with a recognized mental health issue that um, creates problems in terms of being in control of your behavior so things like psychosis um, and those types of conditions i think that that people do know what they're what they're doing um, but I think there's an awful lot of room for misinterpretation on social media and, and those kind of, of platforms. And, and thinking about the kind of stalker who is the intimacy seeker, that person who is, is really wanting a relationship with somebody and they've, they've mistakenly believed that that person has an affection for them. I think social media is, is the kind of breeding ground for, for that kind of, of stalking, intimacy seeking. So it could be that, that, that this person has liked a couple of your tweets or your, your Instagram posts and, and you take that to mean this person is really interested in me. This is great. This, this person really rates what, what I do. Clearly they want a relationship with me. Otherwise they wouldn't be doing this. Um, so I think there, there is a lot of room there for, for misinterpretation. And um, you wrote a bit in here about uh, someone who positions themselves in a state of crisis. And uh, I, I found that part really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, yeah, this comes from some of the, the literature on masculinities. Um, so in probably the last 15, 20 years, we started to look at men's experiences through a gendered lens. We started to look at, at, at what masculinity means, what masculinity looks like. Um, there is um, um, an argument that actually, if we look at a lot of the changes that have happened in society over the last sort of quarter century, um, we've lost a lot of kind of traditional industry and manufacturing and, and that kind of thing. So, so the sort of the, the physicality of work that, that I think was important in, in making a lot of men feel masculine has, has now kind of gone. And there's the argument that, that actually men's role in society now is quite an uncertain one. Because if we combine those kind of political economic changes with the, the increased um, rights and liberties that women have now, um, there are some men who are kind of in a state of crisis. W what am I here for? What is my purpose? Um, and, and this idea of masculinity crisis is one that's quite prominent in um, the literature, in sociology and, and criminology. Uh, but I think we need to be quite careful with it as well in that we don't use that to excuse um, 
horrible behavior, basically. Um, so there are a lot of men experiencing masculinity crises. There are a lot of men in communities where the traditional industries no longer exist, men who are unemployed, men who are experiencing really horrendous outcomes, but they don't decide to go and harm other people. Um, so I think it's part of um, the explanation, but it's not, it's not all of it. Well, on that, do you find that uh, these rejected stalkers and, and these figures of, I guess, stereotypical masculinity will aggressively portray themselves as a victim? Yeah, they will very often present themselves in the victim role. And um, there's, there's a fantastic term um, that's recently been coined for this um, by Laura Richards, who is a, an advocate and a campaigner. And she uses the term poor me syndrome or PMS. We really love this one. Um, so, so this basically describes um, uh, perpetrators who try and present themselves as, as, as vulnerable and weak and fragile. If we think about Harvey Weinstein, um, when he was appearing in, in court, um, he was there with a walking frame. He looked very frail. He was, you know, being, being physically supported by his team. The same with Bill Cosby. Um, with, with his, I think he had a walking stick or, or something like that. So, so the presenting yourself as a victim um, is, is something that we see a lot of perpetrators do. Um, whether that's physically, whether that's that's mentally, um, they they will um, they will draw on on every single resource to to divert attention away from the things they've done. Okay, so that's that's mostly to divert the attention away from the things that they've done. Does it also play into the the narcissism that they like the attention? Uh, just just basically likes the attention uh, and the pity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when, when we look at narcissists, uh, for many of them, any kind of attention is good attention, whether that's, that's negative or, or positive attention. So as long as everybody is looking at me um, and, and sympathizing with my plight, then that's a good thing. And you wrote here, and I know we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but uh, perpetrators' freedoms to do harm far exceed victims' rights to protect themselves from harm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that basically links back to um, the idea that we're, we're very focused on the victim in terms of the victim is responsible for their own victimization. And I think that feeds into the kind of philosophy that we have as a neoliberal society. We value standing on your own two feet, not depending on, on other people, um, self-reliance, all of those, those kind of things. And that has extended into the area of, of crime and harm. So when we become the victims of a crime now, um, there is very much that tendency to say, well, what did you do to make that happen? Somebody broke into your house. Well, you clearly haven't got a good enough home security system. Um, somebody, uh, somebody sexually assaulted you. Well, you must have led them on. What were you wearing? You know, were you drunk at the time? Um, so I think that that does very much feed into to this idea of, of this personal responsibility. Um, and we, we focus on the people who have been victimized rather than the, the people who've chosen to, to do that victimizing. And when you talk about um, a victim in this, in the sense of stalking, ultimately, obviously, it can get to physical harm. But when we're talking about specifically stalking, what makes it illegal? And I guess I know, I know you're not uh, an attorney, but is it, is it fear? Is it making someone afraid of physical harm? Is that what actually makes this act illegal? 
Yeah, so um, the, the legal definitions are going to vary um, between the different jurisdictions, but that is a common element in any legal definition of stalking. It, it's, it's the fear of the victim. Uh, and it is quite a rare crime in that regard, because very often when we look at a crime, we look at what has the perpetrator done? What is the act that they have engaged in? What is the behaviour that they have, have carried out? Um, but here it is very much about the, the victim as well um so the fear evoking part of, of stalking is is quite an important one and we've had some interesting cases in this country recently uh where where we've been kind of struggling to to think well is this stalking or isn't it because it it's um a case where the victim wasn't actually aware of the fact that they were being stalked so they couldn't have been afraid of the perpetrator because they didn't actually know that the perpetrator was doing this and uh, the victim was a, a medical professional who had his own practice and he was just going about his daily business and the, there was this this guy who would essentially have been stalking him for a very long time um, following him around you know tracking him using various means and the victim didn't even know that this was taking place so so it can be quite difficult sometimes um, when the victim isn't aware of, of the stalking. Have you ever seen a case where the victim becomes aware and the stalker uh, reacts in, a, in an aggressive manner? That would depend very much on the, the kind of individual elements around cases um in terms of the the stalker's reaction i think that's a that's a possibility because the victim becoming aware could represent the stalker losing control because the, the stalker feels in control when perhaps the victim doesn't know what they're doing doesn't know what they're up to doesn't know when they're, they're going to turn up and then perhaps when the victim does have that information at their disposal they have a bit more power. So I think it, it's about a power thing um, in, in a situation like that. So I think when, if a stalker was to become, you know, suddenly violent because there's the realisation that the victim's discovered the stalking, that is very much in relation to not feeling in control of that situation anymore. There's a distinct possibility. I can think of two instances off the top of my head where someone in the community in a community that we are very close to have been stalked by someone um and they still continue to talk with that person uh who has stalked them so is there some we, we, I, I know uh, we're not talking about the individual instance in this case but what what is that all about if you can help at all with that yeah i think that can be quite a common thing um and and very often it's it's because of our, the the expectations that are placed on us uh, as members of of society in terms of how we relate to other people. Very often we don't want to come across as rude or aggressive, um, and and we will be kind of compliant and, and nice. And the the Alice Ruggles case actually comes to mind again here uh, because when she was being stalked by her ex partner. Um, she didn't want to be mean to him because that wasn't in her nature. She was she was a very a very nice individual. Um, she'd been brought up well. She'd been brought up not to be rude and aggressive. Um, so I think very often stalkers will take advantage of that when they see that their victim is somebody who is basically a nice person who isn't going to to want confrontation and who will just just try and acquiesce. That's really interesting because. I think there's probably a couple of different reasons. I, I, I don't want to be um, 
aggressive or 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 mean to anybody if if I don't have to be and dealing with a stalker I could see talking to them continuing a conversation with them and a relationship with them almost keeps them at bay almost keeps like a little bit of a, a like reins on them at least you know what they're doing and and you you haven't offended them and you haven't angered them yeah, this is something that, that I've heard quite a lot um, um, in cases of domestic abuse and stalking, because very often the advice given to victims of stalking is just block the stalker, uh, block them on social media, um, change your phone number, just completely remove them from your life. But actually, when you do that, you you can't see what that, that stalker is is doing. You have no way of gauging what their mood is like, what they might do next. And sometimes actually having that channel of communication open, especially in a domestic abuse situation, is quite a good way for victims to keep themselves safe because they know their their abuser the best. Um, They're the ones who have experience of, of their behavior. And to actually completely cut all contact and just send it all black is can actually be quite a dangerous thing and often when you cut off somebody's digital access to you that is the time at which you are most at risk of them turning up physically at your front door or your workplace because they feel entitled to have access to you and and that i think is the time where you're you're quite you're at risk of physical violence yeah this is very dangerous i would imagine in domestic violence cases Absolutely. And, and very often when there are, there are children involved, there, there are court orders basically mandating contact, saying that you two have to communicate with each other. Um, so it can, be, it can be very tricky. Right. Yeah. And um, one thing that we were just sort of talking about was uh, in domestic violence and stalking. And I, and I think this is probably true for sexual abuse, too. But um, people are kind of... Um, blamed for keeping in contact with their abusers um I, I i guess why why should we not do that i guess is that maybe that's a clear question yeah so um i've i've seen this a lot in in some of those high profile cases um that have, have come to light in the last few years um so with with the harvey weinstein case and and jeffrey epstein you know you knew he was abusive why did you maintain contact with him why did you continue to to engage with him and and actually it's it's a very difficult thing to understand as somebody coming at it from the outside but being abused by somebody who is so manipulative who is so controlling who has so much over you um and and that that's one of the tactics of coercive control is very often like an abuser will engage their victim in in deviant or criminal behavior or something that would cause their victim embarrassment if it were to come to light so there's so much there's a real power imbalance when we look at a situation of abuse and we tend to think of all relationships as kind of level playing fields um, but but actually, many of them aren't. Many of them, people don't have the same rights and liberties and choices that that you or I have in our consensual equal relationships. So, what are you, what are your thoughts on like a, a group uh, think tank? Like, in order to properly convey the education, uh, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, it's it's a very difficult one. And and that's a question that I've been thinking about quite a lot over the last six months or so. Like how do you bring about? Um and there is just so much to do. And I think actually, you know, you can't change the world, but you can change the little bit of it around you. 
So whilst I will still get involved in, in campaigns for policy change and new legislation and all of that big picture stuff, I think some of the difference that, that I can make are around the people that I come into contact with regularly, my family, my students, um, people who get in touch with me to ask about my research. So I think it's, it's, it's about doing our, our bit as individuals. I think calling out some of the misogynistic sexist behavior that we see in our everyday lives um, and, and having like the, the courage and the bravery to do that, um, especially, you know, if it's in a context of friends or family, sometimes it can feel quite awkward to do that. But, but I think calling these things out and changing the little bit of the world around you, if everybody does that, then we're actually going to bring about the cultural change that we need. Yeah, I really liked what you said about calling it out. I, I would love it if there was this uh, movement of sort of a, a new uh, masculinity that, that, you know, you can, it's okay to call out one of your fellow uh men and and say that's you're, that's not right like what you're doing is abusive and it's not right and 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 just get rid of that whole uh i mean like you said there was there there was a whole um time in this world where if you did a certain job you were considered manly like that was a manly job those are those are are going away those those are disappearing let's get the attitude uh to to go along with those and and develop and develop a new attitude. Yeah, it, it's all about cultural change. You can for as much legislative changes as, as we want. We can change the law. We can criminalise certain behaviours. But at the end of the day, it's the cultural change that makes the biggest difference. It's it's the the feeling that it's not okay to do this. Um, and actually, those types of things are going to make the the largest kind of change. But yeah, I think that's that's one thing that I'm always really keen to emphasise. Um, this, I, I suppose, I carry the feminist label. Um, I am a feminist, and there is a bit of a kind of ooh, awkwardness and fear around that sometimes. You know, I'm this kind of man-hating, crazy feminist, but that's not true at all. You know, men can be feminists too. You know, men can call out these kind of behaviours, and we need men to do this. Uh, we can't do it all on our own. Well, my, my last point is I think we should all boycott Hallmark because they start the whole stalking process. I mean, think about Valentine's Day. Think about the cards that say, like, be mine. Like, what is that? Oh, God. Yeah. It is creepy as hell, isn't it? Yeah. When you, you take a step back and you look at Valentine's Day through this kind of critical lens, it, yeah, it can be a bit creepy. <laughs> like, would, would you ever say that to somebody to their face? Like, be mine? Be mine. Be mine. mine. Oh dear, that's yeah, ownership, that's possession, movie. and control. Dearie me. I mean, unless it was a bee pun in there. <laughs> I, I do love bees. I do love the, <laughs> the honeybee. <laughs> My gosh, thank you so much, Liz, for joining us here again uh, to talk about your research, your incredible research. Oh, and you did you have a co-author uh, on this one too? So yeah, I've covered authored this um, and he he's um, one of my colleagues at Birmingham City University he's one to watch he's a badass great Good awesome I love that well thank you very much Liz I uh, can't wait to do this again yeah well there are more papers in the pipeline so <laughs> I'll keep you posted
When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.